Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language, writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, I have a segment about when wordiness is bad, but also when it's okay, and a segment about autological words, words that are like the things they describe. I've heard from a lot of you who have pet peeves about different wordy phrases, and it's a lot of fun to hear what gets under people's skin and why. Here's one example from Lara in New York. One that has always bugged me is, I'm writing to tell you that. It drives me crazy when people begin letters this way, as in, I'm writing to tell you that I am resigning from my job. Just tell me. Okay, so you're writing to tell me, but just tell me. Is this correct, or is this just another redundancy? I have to admit that I've been struggling with this one ever since I said not to start emails with the phrase, I just wanted to let you know. For example, I just wanted to let you know that nachos are half price until 6 o'clock. Or I just wanted to let you know that I'm going to miss my deadline. I couldn't figure out why starting sentences that way felt so right, but seemed so wrong at the same time. Then Jeff from Fountain Valley wrote in to comment that many of these seemingly empty phrases act as buffers, carry certain emotional weight, or demonstrate personality. And then it all came together in my head. When I'm writing an email, I often imagine that I'm talking to the person. Whereas it might feel like I'm insisting that we must go out to eat if I just write nachos or half price until six— It feels more like a suggestion or me just sending helpful information if I lead into the idea a little more gradually. I just wanted to let you know that nachos are half price until six. It's more like I'm saying, do you want to maybe go get nachos tonight? Or I know you love nachos, so I thought you might want to know that they're on sale tonight. It's less insistent. Similarly, it might sound like I don't care if I email my editor and say, I'm going to miss my deadline. But if I start with what some people might consider an empty phrase and say, I just wanted to let you know that I'm going to miss my deadline, then it feels less like a confident statement and more like a sheepish admission of my failure. In Lara's example, I'm writing to tell you that I'm resigning from my job, The writer might be anxious about resigning and wanting to add some extra words as a buffer. So even though I still believe that a lot of the time people just use these phrases out of habit, and it's a bad habit, sometimes these buffer phrases have a place in the world. Just check in with yourself every once in a while to make sure you're not using them for no reason, 
and be especially aware of them when you're writing something more formal than an email. Also notice that at least sometimes, as in my examples, they can make you sound less forceful or confident. On the other hand, there are words that typically don't serve any purpose. For example, Shaw from the Philippines wrote in to ask if I have any suggestions as to how people can avoid using filler words, such as actually, so, and like. As I told Merritt from Chicago, who also wrote in asking how to stop peppering her speech with the word like, I'm especially sympathetic to this problem because it's a bad habit I picked up as a teenager, and I still have to consciously suppress that valley girl in my head, especially when I'm speaking off the cuff. Also, these words can sound natural in speech, but look amateurish in writing, unless you're writing dialogue and want it to sound like casual speech. All I can say is, yes, it's often bad to use these empty words, and the only way I know of to stop doing it is to make a conscious effort to stop. If part of the problem is that all your friends talk the same way, and if they're interested in stopping too, then it might be helpful to make a pact and point it out to each other when you slip up. Getting friends who are more articulate might help because we tend to talk like our friends, but that seems extreme. Maybe you could take a public speaking class. Here's another quick peeve. A listener named Anne points out that the phrase in order is often unneeded. For example, some people say, I'm going to the market in order to buy groceries. It would mean the same thing if they said, I'm going to the market to buy groceries. In order is unnecessary. Another listener named Rocky seems to be hiring because he wrote in with a long list of complaints about phrases that sound like they could only come from cover letters and resumes, and he included some imaginary responses to them. For example, he writes, Please don't hesitate to contact me. Okay, I was sitting here in a state of apprehension about whether to call or not, but since you've now given me permission, I'll go ahead and call. Call me at your earliest possible convenience. Don't we always contact someone at our own convenience? He'd rather see something simple and straightforward, like, call me if you have questions. Now, here's another wordiness issue that actually turns out to be controversial. Kelly left a comment on the website saying that her pet peeve is when people modify the word unique. For example, that is the most unique painting I've ever seen. The issue is that the primary meaning of unique is one of a kind. It's an absolute— so something can't be more unique than something else. Chris, who teaches English in Japan, and a listener named Julie also wrote in about modifying absolute words. Here's the deal. Every authoritative source I checked said it's bad to qualify or compare the word unique. And then, in the next breath, they all acknowledged that it's commonly done and that it's been done for a long time. For example, Fowler considers unique to be weakened in the sentence, those are very unique maracas. He says it must be conceded that unique is losing its quality of being not gradable or absolute. But he also notes that it continues to be controversial. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, since the middle of the 19th century, unique has, quote, had a tendency to take the wider meaning of uncommon, unusual, remarkable, unquote. A lot of usage notes talk about the role advertising plays in diluting the meaning of unique, And I had to laugh because I have a friend who sells new homes, and I gave her a hard time after she made a sign advertising her unique new subdivision. I used to live in one of those subdivisions, so I'm not knocking them. But you can get lost because all the houses look alike. They are anything but unique, and her sign just cracked me up. 
Gardner's modern English usage is especially negative about the phrase very unique, but does say that it's okay to modify the word unique in some ways, like truly unique for emphasis, and almost unique for things that are rare. Even though very unique is widespread, has been in use for a long time, and is increasing, it's still a good idea to avoid it if you want to be safe, because it's one of those things that always shows up on lists of pet peeves meaning it's the kind of phrase that's still likely to get noticed in a negative way. Similar absolute words that people tend to modify when they technically shouldn't include destroyed, perfect, and dead. Technically, completely destroyed is the same as destroyed, and absolutely perfect is the same as perfect. I will, however, argue that when you're writing about zombies and vampires, there's a difference between dead and 100% dead. Think of the word long. Now think of the word elongated. Long is within it, and the two words are pretty much synonymous. Consider this, then. The word elongated is long, but longer. It's been elongated. The word describes itself, making it an autological word. Auto meaning self, and logical, in this case, meaning something like true. An autological word is true to itself or true to its meaning. For example, longer is longer than long, so it fits the category, too. It's autological. Are you following along? Sometimes autological words can be confused with onomatopoeic words, the sound effects words that convey the sounds they represent, like bang, boom, crash, zap, and so on. Those aren't truly autological. The words are not themselves the things they stand for, any more than a photograph of a fish is an actual fish. They're just evocative representations of sounds. There's a bit of dovetailing between the two categories, however, if we consider some words as they are spoken aloud. Fluid is indeed fluid. It flows. Fluid. As you speak the long U sound, and as it flows into the next vowel, the short I, the air flows out of your mouth and between your lips. Fluid. Another is languid. It almost begs the speaker to slow down, take time to savor all the soft consonants, especially the NG sound. A similar-sounding word, lingual, beyond referring to languages, relates to the tongue. As you say lingual, your tongue plays a major role. The two L's at the beginning and end with the NG in the middle give the tongue a workout. Lingual might be the most lingual word in the English language. Plosives, hard consonants such as P, K, and T, can contribute to a word's autological standing. Think of brusque, which has a terse staccato quality. Staccato is another. Likewise, structural is formidable, structurally speaking. And strength has eight letters, seven of them consonants. It's potent. Now, bland with its soft consonants and just a short A as its lone vowel is, well, rather ho-hum. A word such as tiny would certainly qualify as autological because it is, in fact, tiny. It has two syllables and four little letters. Two of them, the T and the I, are thin. Ask anyone who's written a headline for a print publication, and they'll extol the values of skinny letters in making words fit into tight space. Bit is another example. 
Not the past tense of bite, mind you, but a little bit, a tiny bit, an itty bit, short and sweet. At the other end of the spectrum, we have polysyllabic, meaning composed of multiple syllables, just as the word polysyllabic is. Its more precise sibling is pentasyllabic, denoting something of five syllables. No more, no less. And if you count, you find that it has five syllables. Pentasyllabic. That's a bit gaudy. One might even say it's ostentatious, which is an ostentatious way of saying gaudy. Well, what do you know? There's another example. That could be considered vainglorious, which describes an entity that is so vain about being glorious that it warrants having the two conjoined. Hey, what about conjoined? That's the word joined, joined with the prefix con, meaning together. So it's joined together, as opposed to being joined apart, we must assume. Let's consider indescribable. We can define it, but only using negatives, what it is not. It is an adjective describing something that defies description. Doesn't that make it somewhat indescribable? Wow, that borders on being metaphysical and possibly abstruse. Well, there's another. The first time or two you see or hear the word abstruse, it will almost certainly be confusing, until you learn that it means confusing. Still, it's an abstruse way of saying so. Here's a set of homonyms, sound-alike words, in which one is autological, but only when paired with its partner. The word discreet, ending in E-E-T, means prudent, judicious, or circumspect. The word discreet, ending in E-T-E, means something different. It means different or distinct. So discreet, E-T-E, is discreet from discreet, E-E-T. That is, of course, quite a distinctive example. There are two particular nouns that are sort of anti-autological. That is, they don't live up to their own designations. Anagram and palindrome. Both have to do with altering the letters within a word or phrase. An anagram is a word whose letters can be scrambled to form another word, such as large, glare, regal, and lager. Scrabble aficionados know the value of anagramming to find multiple options for their tiles. The trouble with anagram is that it has no anagram, not in one word anyway. The closest we can come to using all seven letters is the two-word combination, a regman. A palindrome is more complex. It's a word or phrase that reads the same forward and backward, such as mom, deed, and madam, I'm Adam. Sometimes you have to shift or ignore the punctuation. In any case, the word palindrome is not a palindrome. If read backward, it would be amordnalap. Hmm. How about if we took either half of the word and mirrored it? What do you think of palinolap? Or maybe amordrome? Maybe not. A while ago, we cited a campaign by a Canadian boy named Levi Budd to coin the word levodrome to describe a series of letters that spells one word forward and a different word backward, such as maps and spam. Well, Charles Harrington Elster, author of the book Word Workout, wrote in to remind us that levodrome is not the first attempt at naming such words. Samordnilap has been in use for decades. It's palindromes spelled backward, making it our final example of an autological word. 
That segment was written by Rob Rinalda, a Robinson Prize laureate for excellence in editing and the founder of WordSar Media. And finally, here's a short familect story that goes especially well with this episode because it's about an onomatopoeia. Hello. I have a story of a familect of our own. Uh, it happens to also be an onomatopoeia. It was foop, F-O-O-P. It uh, essentially was a verb that meant to strike someone with a pillow. It was a pillow fight word. That's our story. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. And remember, if you want to hear your family story on the show, leave a voicemail message at 833214-GIRL. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl and author of seven books, including the New York Times bestseller, Grammar Girl's Quick and Dirty Tips for Better Writing. And thanks to my audio producer, Nathan Sems. The show is part of the Quick and Dirty Tips podcast network, and you can find articles that go with each episode at quickanddirtytips.com. That's all. Thanks for listening. Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.